Well, hi, y'all. I think it's that time. And uh, my wife is uh, kindly doing my grunt work, which is not an aberration from the norm. Uh, she's handing out uh, two pieces of paper, one white, one green. And uh, one is just an outline for my talk, because it helps me stay organized and accountable to you. <laughs> and the green uh, handout is something that we use within our local uh, context, our church, when working with seminarians, training them how to preach. And so you'll find uh, some pointers that we use in terms of training. And if they sound a little too law-oriented for your tastes, I would simply say that it's the first use of the law that is to restrain evil. Uh, so I'm doing my best here. So uh, I, I pass that one out to you simply for your own, uh, for your own uh, consideration. And it may relate to your context, and it might not. Uh, what I would like to do is begin with a, a little prayer, and then we'll dive into some material that I hope will be helpful for us. So <clears throat> let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would uh, sink down and inhabit this moment and make it useful as we preach and as we hear preachers. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to begin a little heavily a little uh, leadenly. Uh, it happened on September the 11th, but 2019. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. I got a phone call when I was away at a pastor's retreat. And uh, the phone call was a serious one. My mother had uh, passed away in, in the evening uh, prior. She <clears throat> was a, a woman who had struggled for about 30 years with very acute addictions, ranging from alcoholism to narcotics. And we had had, a, I would say, a strained relationship to the point where I had, for a variety of reasons, really distanced myself for the sake of safety. It's what I do. And uh, I would say that hearing that message from my very shaken wife uh, was something, the emotion of that moment stays with me still. And uh, I came home, of course, and was asked by my stepfather if I would conduct the funeral. By the way, it really stinks if you're a minister because you just get roped into things that are way beyond your capacity. And so I, of course, out of guilt and maybe a little personal atonement said yes and I you know I did it days later I did this service I it was lovely actually it was a beautiful traditional Anglican service the prayer book's really good uh, and things like funerals and it was meaningful I organized this choir and they and I tried to almost honor her in, in death in a way kind of mirroring the opposite of how I sometimes dealt with her in life you know I wanted to at least show honor at some point and after the funeral and the sermon and everything else was over, I uh, was brought uh, via the hearse to this, to the graveside. And it was one of those old-fashioned funerals where you commend somebody there at the graveside, and they were actually lowering the casket down in front of us all, which they don't always do anymore, but they did it, and we were to take handfuls of dirt and scatter it 
on the lid of the descending casket. And I was to say the words. You know, the benefit of Anglicanism is they give you a script, so you don't have to think on your feet all the time, especially if you're not very good at that. So I was given a script. I had the script. Uh, And you say the words. You say, uh, into thy merciful hands, O most merciful Savior, we commend thy servant, and then you name them. And I couldn't. I couldn't finish the prayer. I don't really even know why. It felt like all of the reality and the gravity of the loss hit me very acutely at that moment. And more than that, the 10,000 strands that were never tied together and the reality that now, at least in this life, they never would be, not really, not fully, it all hit me. All my regret and my, my avoidance tactics and all that. So I stood there in awkward silence, having the script in front of me, but being unable to read it. And it was just one of the most awkward moments of my life, but I was caught. I was caught. Um, now, what did I need in that moment? the moment of the casket's descent. What did I need? I want to put a pin in that story. I'll come back to it at the end. But this is not a ham-handed segue. I want to speak about preaching because what that Ethan needed at that moment was a transcendent word from God that it would affix itself to my actual being and what, what I really felt. But I want to speak about preaching because I think it's one of the most amorphous subjects out there. At least it's often described in amorphous terminology or even the question, what makes a a good sermon good is answered in such a myriad of ways by a myriad of people that I think nailing down the answer can be somewhat challenging. I've heard a variety of answers. Many people think a sermon is particularly good when they are moved emotionally in some way, when they cry, when they laugh. For some people, they prefer sermons that sound intelligent because they think that means, after all, if we are in the audience listening to an intelligent sermon, by transitive property, that means we're intelligent too, which is a pretty nice boon. For other people, it's that the minister or the congregation, whilst listening to the minister, reifies all of my political or ideological commitments. And so Sunday after Sunday, I find myself buttressed by the words of the minister. Or, for other people, hearing a sermon makes me feel good about my progress, however defined. Or, a good sermon distracts me from my evident lack of progress. But different people have different ideas of what a sermon ought to do. Now, here at the Mockingbird Conference, many people, and I'm among them, am convinced uh, that a grace-based or a redemptive model of preaching is best. But if you scratch beneath the surface on why we think it's best, I think the answers can somewhat uh, can be somewhat complicated. For many people, it's affective. Hearing a grace-based sermon or a redemptively oriented sermon makes me feel less bad about my bad parts, about my bad self. And so I go for a temporary catharsis. Um, for others, it's, uh, it's, it's about antipathy for my own personal history. When I hear grace-based preaching instead of legal preaching or exhortative preaching, it makes me feel that I've finally 
developed from evolved past my earlier legalistic self that I no longer want to be like. So it's, a, it's an attack on my own history. It's a way to distance myself from the person I don't wish to be. I understand the therapeutic reasons for appreciating grace-based homiletics, but what I want to say very, um, very clearly is I just think there's a better reason for liking it. I think there's a, a solider reason for preferring redemptive, grace-oriented preaching, and uh, it's simply this. Jesus taught us to do it. It's dominical. It's actually in the Bible. Uh, so regardless if I like it or not, have a liver shiver when I hear it or not, it's still true. Uh, and uh, so I simply want to say that it's actually the way that the risen Christ commissions his apostles to preach. Uh, so it's biblically rooted. And so I want to speak today with you about uh, Christ-oriented hermeneutics and Christ-oriented homiletics. If you don't know those words, do not be much afraid. Hermeneutics just means how you interpret the Bible, and homiletics means what you preach. So the hermeneutics and homiletics of the risen Jesus. So I have a text that I'd like us to consider together, and it's on your uh, handout, and it comes from Luke chapter 24. And this is Jesus' great commission from Luke's gospel. You know, it's one of those odd things that we only seem to focus on the Great Commission from Matthew's Gospel, but I just simply remind people there are four Great Commissions in the New Testament. Uh, There's none from Mark, but there's one from Luke, one from Matthew, uh, one from John, and then there's one at the beginning of the Book of Acts. So this is the Lucan account of the Great Commission when Jesus is training up, essentially, biblical interpreters and proclaimers. And this is his words... These are his words to those interpreters and proclaimers. This is from, again, Luke 24. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So let me speak about hermeneutics and then homiletics. Hermeneutics, that is how we interpret and understand the Bible, at least according to Christ, where he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, uh, Is there a unifying ocean that draws to itself all of the ancient tributaries of Holy Writ? Is there anything that draws together all these various ideas and conceptions and authors and dates and places and times and wisdom, all of it together? Um, Christ did believe so. Sometimes I hear that the, the... the Bible, after all, is just a, a library of various Feuerbachian ideas that people paste onto the heavens, you know, various niche theological concepts that contradict other theological concepts, and so it's sort of like a big Yeats poem, and you pick and choose the bits that you happen to like and appeal to you. That's really neat. It's just a sub-Christian argument. Uh, the Christian argument given by Jesus is that no, in fact, all of these disparate books and ideas and conceptions find this gorgeous core harmonization 
in that they point to, communicate, predict, foreshadow, create a need for the forthcoming Christ, the person who would fulfill the paper, if you will, the one who would come to embody all of those urgencies and urges from that ancient text. And so Jesus leads the disciples through this Bible study in the middle of a resurrection scene. It's fascinating. I mean, he offers them the three bundles of the Old Testament, which is a synecdoche way of saying the whole thing. When it talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, sometimes called the writings, it's a way of saying everything. Everything that we, we have received in Holy Writ to this point. So it's an all-encompassing Bible study. It probably took more than eight minutes. Um, and he takes them through it to show that he is the face, the person that fulfills the paper, the, the face of all of these um, ancient yearnings. So I don't know what he did in terms of those sections. Maybe in the law section, he took them to Genesis 3 and talked about the fact that a descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Maybe Genesis 28, where he talked about you know, the ladder, Jacob's ladder that reached between heaven and earth, mediatorial presence that would come into the world. Maybe he took them to Numbers 21, that weirdo story about a serpent raised in the wilderness that would actually heal people if you stared at it. Maybe he took them to, you know, the law codes and all the sacrificial animals that had to perish and be obliterated because of the inner obliteration of human sin. Maybe he took them to those places in the law. In terms of the prophets, maybe he took them to Ezekiel 47 and, and talked about the streams of living water that would flow out of a new temple, and he was that new temple offering that new water. Maybe he talked about Jeremiah 31 and a new covenant that would pl- replace the old covenant that didn't cure people. Maybe he would take them to Isaiah 53 and talk about the obliterated sufferer who would become not just the iconic sufferer but the substitutionary sufferer for the whole human race. In terms of the Psalms, maybe he took them to all of those ancient psalmistic cries for a universal emperor who would come into the world to cure what no king had ever cured. Maybe he took them to the book of Proverbs and talked about how wisdom would at some point be personified, would take more of a collective, um, uh, um, would be more than a collective, would be sort of individualized in a way. I don't know. But I do know that he took all of the bits of the ancient scripture, of course, lovingly appreciated them and showed how he was the fulfillment of all of their, of all of their meaning. And so uh, it was like a mosaic, if you will, little bits and fragments of stone all put together that portrayed the face of the one known as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, that all of it had meaning. And so for us, the Old Testament is not just some negative foil against which Christ can be contrasted. Instead, Christ is the very fulfillment of all of those ancient yearnings. Uh, And what's also fascinating about Jesus is how he thought the Old Testament was Christocentric. The Old Testament was Christocentric. The Old Testament that never spells out the words J-E-S-U-S-C-H-R-I-S-T is all about Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, the Old Testament, what's fascinating about it, and you see this in the uh, modern English renderings of the last prophet, um, in the Old Testament, there's this sort of stretching outward for a fulfillment that the Old Testament itself realizes it doesn't have. It's all inspired pointing out, stretching out to the future when somebody will, uh, will fulfill it. Um, and um, it's, it's almost as if, uh, the, I believe it was Phillips Brooks who wrote the hymn, A Little Town of Bethlehem, um, 
is it, isn't the, aren't the lyrics, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, or is that another hymn? I don't remember. Yeah, thanks. Okay, good. Now I feel better about myself. Um, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee, that there was a sense in which the Old Testament itself was creating a necessity, a psychological, spiritual necessity for fulfillment that Jesus himself meets. But more than that, uh, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was redemptively Christocentric. Not just that a Christ figure would come, but a Christ figure who was intrinsically tragic. The Christ figure who was demolished and reclamated. That that was the heart of the enterprise. Uh, that's why the text says, and Jesus uh, summarizing the Old Testament meaning says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be Raised. That is, the culmination of the Christ event wasn't his teaching or lectures as impressive as they were, wasn't his healing and restoration of destroyed people as important as those events were, or the expelling of dark forces from people's conscious lives, as great as those events were. It was, in fact, his obliteration. And I think it's really important to mention that the Apostle Paul, when he recounts the life of Christ, which he does in every single letter, does so almost only by focusing on the most embarrassing element of the Christ story. That is his devastation, because he believed that's the locus of life. That God is, to quote Luther, most active or you think he's most absent. Theology of the cross. Uh, and so Jesus here is uh, focusing on those events um, you know, when I, I was a hospital, or excuse me, yeah, I was, that, that is what I was, a hospital chaplain. I was a terrible hospital chaplain. They always say that in every room, you should bring a non-anxious presence. Well, those of you who know me, know that's not an option. I make cancer victims feel worse. Like, just when I walk in, everybody feels terrible, because I'm clearly not fit for that kind of atmosphere. Um, but I had, a, I had a friendship with a reform rabbi in the hospital, and he was, he was great, and he would mock me very openly because of my infelicities. And, uh, but one day we got a little serious, and he wanted to talk about Jesus because it, at the hospital they would sometimes hold memorial services, especially for people that might not have had family they would have little services that Christian ministers very often would run in the hospital um, chapel. And he said, Ethan, I really don't understand you guys. Like, what, especially your sermons, they're dreadful. And I said, I know, I agree, but, but what makes them dreadful to you? And he said, well, they lack, they lack integrity. And I said, oh, tell me more. And he said, well, the thing is, in Reformed Judaism, you know, many of us do believe in an afterlife and how you would acquire uh, kind of a better position in that afterlife is that your life is shaped by Torah and so you're near, nearer the center of being as you obey Torah and you wrap your life around it you're shaped and you're helped and so you step closer and closer to the, the center of all things and he said but you guys have this ridiculous, he mocked it he said you have this ridiculous idea of like the man scapegoat right that this other man was able to take upon himself all of your defects and sort of substitute out his goodness. You know, you get a free pass because of this Jesus fella. And I said, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the idea. And he said, but I never hear you preach about that. He's like, you sound just like us. You just sound like ethicists, that we should perfect the craft, constantly perfecting the craft. He said, that just lacks such integrity. If I were you and I believed the ridiculous stuff that you believe, I would preach about that all the time. <laughs> you know, and I, if you can't take it from me, take it from my rabbi friend, you know. 
But that's where Jesus focuses, on that distinctive edge, the thing that Christianity offers that is unique and fresh. Uh, You know, within the Anglican tradition, which is, it's really quite something, um, we talk about our distinctives a lot, what makes us distinctive and different. I get so tired of that egotism, but uh, that's that's part of the package deal, I think. But I don't really care about that. I do care about Jesus' distinctiveness. And the distinctiveness can be summarized in Cooper's hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. There's something about my pathology that is so deep and dark, I actually can't cure it. Heaven knows I've tried. But it can be forgiven. It can be forgiven, and somehow the, 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 the implanted seeds of that forgiveness have great power to soften my hard heart and make me a new creation. Well, that's Jesus' Old Testament Christocentricity and his redemptive, um, his redemptive understanding of the Old Testament and what it leads to. And I simply want to say that Jesus' hermeneutic, friends, has a slouch or a lean or an emphasis, and that emphasis is redemption. Of course, lots of material in the Old Testament. There's legal material, there's wisdom tradition, beautiful things, but they have a lean. They're leaning into something. This is why St. Paul, in the canon of the New Testament, can say in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, brothers, I present to you the gospel. It's one of the clearest places where Paul presents the gospel and defines it. And he says, and it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried and rose again in accordance with the scriptures. But before he defines the gospel, he says, and this is of first importance. In other words, he gives a canonical weight, if you will, to the gospel itself. It's not that everything else lacks any importance, it just simply means they're not as important as the core, as the ocean to which all the tributaries are leading. Um, Now, I, I simply want to conclude this section by saying, for us, Jesus is the pyramidic capstone at the top of the structure of scripture. That is, Jesus sits atop the biblical canon, defining its terms and its emphases. Why that's important is because very often in church life, we want to replace this capstone with other gifts of the gospel or elements of the faith that are important but not the most important. So depending on where people are, personally or theologically, they take themes like holiness or justice or inclusion bricks down the pyramid, and they seek to replace the capstone, take the capstone off, jam that down into the pyramid, and replace the capstone with something else from down below. The problem is, then, that you create a pyramid that isn't uh, uh, solid. In fact, can crumble very easily, uh, because you end up worshiping some gift of Jesus, or some element of Jesus, rather than Jesus himself. And then you start defining, and then Jesus becomes useful. He's just a brick to support some other thing. And it's idolatrous. And it's actually very, very dangerous for us. Um, But what I want to say is, no, Jesus sits atop the biblical pyramid, defining all those terms. And so we ask what justice is through a Christocentric understanding, what inclusion is from a Jesus perspective. Because it's very often different from how those words are bandied about within our own cultural moments. Um, And so that's something about how Jesus understood hermeneutics. He says, here's the Old Testament. Interpret it through the lens of my fulfillment and appreciate it from that perspective. But see me in all of it. 
And that, of course, leads to the homiletical question. That is, what do we say in his name? How do we preach? And he tells preachers what to preach. He's, again, training proclaimers or preachers in verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be preached or proclaimed in his name to all nations. Let me make just a few comments about this. An obvious point, Jesus links the message of reconciliation with his death and resurrection, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. I know this sounds very obvious, but a Christian sermon has to be kind of Jesus-obsessed. It has to actually hinge on Jesus. I think this is really important because we as Christians are not archetypalists. We don't only preach broad categories of love or truth or even grace as important and critical as it is. We do preach those things, but we, first and foremost, are preachers of solidification or localization. It's not just an Oblomovian sense of love out there, that love was actually localized. That it, well, it did happen. That this is God with pores on his nose and, you know, pH measurable blood. That, 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 like, it actually happened within time and space and history, regardless of our reaction to it or how it makes us feel or not feel inside, that, that our claim is that Christianity hinges not on affect but on object. That it did happen. Um, I, I, I think this is important, the objectivity of the gospel simply because there will be times when we're ter terribly affected by it and other times where it feels dry. But that's okay. You know, I, I liken it to uh, the covenant of marriage. All I ever do is premarital counseling. I need help. It's just too much. It's all, I have all these little couples, and they're all wonderful and very naive and floaty. And, uh, you know, I see stars every time I look at him and or her, and I'm like, give it time. But, but that's where they are, and it's really neat, I guess. And, and, but, you know, at the marital ceremony, I'm one of these old-fashioned preachers that ha has them do the vows in the book. Like, I don't have them write their own, so they do the vows. And what I like about that is what it says about the covenant and about the context. Because the context is always changing, right? And you can't predict it, which really bites, but it's just true, right? And the, the context is commented upon in the vows themselves. Or you know it, for better or worse, richer or, in sickness and in till death do us. I mean, it's pretty sober stuff, but it's saying like it could be awesome sauce from now on, or this could all be a big heap of crap. But we don't know, and we're, well, I guess we'll see. But the covenant says like, you've got me and I've got you, and we're gonna, we're gonna do whatever we can to make it work, right? Regardless of what life throws at us. And as we know, I mean, sometimes that works better than others, but, but that's the idea that the covenant is supposed to hold even if the context changes. And that's the good word of the objective gospel of the Jesus that really did perish and really did rise again from a real tomb is that you are really saved whether you really like it that day or not. Like, it's all okay. It'll be okay. Because it's about object, not affect. Um, but from that objective perspective of this really did happen for you, there's all this internalization that uh, Jesus talks about in terms of repentance and faith, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins, now there's a textual variant there, it could say repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but it doesn't matter, the two are connected in this text, should be preached in his name. Just a word about each. Um, repentance. Uh, 
I, I often remember and think of the quote from William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who kind of made a prophetic utterance toward the end of his life. He said these words, the chief danger of the coming century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Now, we can think or say whatever we want about that, but there's something about that that rings true to me, that he, he saw something. He saw the seedlings of something that would grow. Um, but his point is that repentance is important, and I agree with him, and maybe we don't talk about it enough, but I think there is an error in sometimes how we define repentance. I had a preacher come to our church once and just simply define in front of the whole congregation, repentance is when you stop sinning. I mean, you just, you're going that way, and then you walk that way. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's dumb, because, like, everybody believes that to some extent. That's not unique to Christianity. Everybody thinks you're doing stupid things. You shouldn't do those. You do better things, right? But if that's all it is, that's, I don't think that's profound or interesting, because all that means is that I'm turning from self to self to better myself. It's a, just a turn toward willpower, like, I should be better, and so I'm going to try really hard to be better. Christian repentance, though, is different. It's saying, look, I, I have two problems. One is I ha I'm, I'm deeply self-sabotaging and vice-ridden, but I'm also constantly trying to justify my own existence by all the good things that I do or try to do or show to the world. And what, I, what repentance is is, is not so much a turning from vice to virtue, but a turning from both my vices and my self-accumulated justifying virtues to Christ. So it's not turning from me to me. It's saying, I got a lot going on, and I don't even understand half of it. But my legitimacy, my oneness, my solidity, my integration comes from the gift of somebody who loves me whether I get better or not. And that's a different way of understanding repentance. It's a turning away from self to Christ. Um, and, and then there's the forgiveness bit, because we turn away from self to the one who forgives. But before I get there, one of my favorite examples of repentance is actually from Brideshead Revisited, the book we all had to read in 11th grade, and none of us did. Um, <laughs> but there's a beautiful scene in it. It's one of my favorites where um, Julia Flight, the character Julia Flight, and she was a little scandalosa earlier in life, and she had a lot of problems, and she loved dudes a lot, and uh, she's complicated. But uh, and she, in fact, in one, um, one outburst, because she was trying to dis dissolve her connections to her, her early latent Catholicism, and she was saying, I now worship at the altar of sin. You know, it gets really, yeah, she's into that for a while. And then she has a, she has a crisis, and she's driven to a place of repentance, and one of her old lovers sees her praying, and he's disgusted, and says, Julia, what the hell, what are you doing? And she looks at him, but like with love, and she says, look, best line ever, I've always been bad. Probably I shall be bad again. But I cannot escape his mercy. However bad I am, I am quite sure he will not despair of me in the end. It's just gorgeous. I mean, she turned away from something of self and turned to something better that really captured her on the inside. Well, we do. We turn toward forgiveness. 
And I think this is one of the most challenging messages in all of Christianity. It sounds appealing. Who doesn't want to be forgiven until you like think about it for about three seconds? Because Christianity is really neither about affirmation nor accusation, but absolution. And that's a different thing. Uh, forgiveness is hard for us because it necessarily involves all sorts of displeasing predicates. Displeasing predicates because it means that we need to be forgiven of who we are and what we've done, all of our self-sabotaging, all of our games, all, all of the cover-ups and the, and the smiles we put on and just fake away all of our nightmares, you know, all of it, that we have to be forgiven. Um, and also that our need is so great we can't just fix the damage. We can't just make it better through hard work. We, uh, we can't restore justice. We need somebody to love us when we can't restore justice and forgive us and hold us close when we're running a, while, a mile away. Um, and uh, I think that um, forgiveness is, in fact, a, a foreign word to us. It, it feels like something I sometimes want, but when other people need it for me, I'm always afraid they'll abuse it. You know, so I'm... I'm, I need to cope with the message of forgiveness over a lifetime. Gerhard Ferde said that, that sanctification is mostly just coping with justification over a lifetime. A lot of wisdom in that. That's why in an Anglican service, in a traditional Anglican service, Thomas Cranmer, who was a literary genius, the author of the prayer book, said that when people confess their sins in church, they need to receive five absolutions because nobody's going to believe it. So the minister says, you know, we wave our hands in front of you and we say words that you're forgiven. And then we quote, two things from Jesus, one from Paul and one from John, to show that the whole New Testament canon aligns itself in your favor, right? We quote Jesus, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, and for God so loved the world he gave his only son. And then we quote St. <laughs> um, Paul, this is a true saying and worthy of all to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then St. John, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Five absolutions so that you know that when heaven looks at you, heaven is not disgusted. Heaven isn't full of antipathy. That's just a maya. It's an illusion in your own brain, and it's not real. Uh, so... I, I think we, it's something that we cope with over a lifetime. One of the most beautiful illustrations of forgiveness I've actually discovered in an HBO show that I'm totally obsessed with. It's called The New Pope. It's a sequel to the show called The Young Pope. Uh, and The New Pope is all about the papacy of John Malkovich. I kid you not. He plays John Paul III, who is sort of this wishy-washy moderate pope. It's kind of funny. And he has like this crisis of conscience at this one point in the show, very late in the show. And he's like, aching, as we all are, but he's aching for a sense of forgiveness. And so he wants to confess his sins to this cardinal. So he gets this cardinal to sit on the other side of the confessional booth. And he starts saying all this stuff about his own personal life. And he says, look, I'm a liar, and I manipulate people. And I put on a show, and I'm a failed thespian, you know. He said, and then he gets more serious. And he says, and I'm a drug addict. He is in the show. He's addicted to heroin. I'm a drug addict. And then he confesses his most grievous crime, at least in his own mind, which was 
and my masterpiece, this theological book he had written, that is changing the face of the church, I never wrote it. My brother wrote it. And when he died, I stole it. And I acted as if it were my own. I'm just an imposter. And this cardinal confessor looks at him after a pause and asks, are you finished, Holy Father? And the Pope looks at him incredulously through the, and says, is that not enough? And the incredibly pastoral cardinal says, no, it is not enough to remain unforgiven. God saves us. God saves us always. God never restricts the gift of salvation to anybody who wants it. It is the most beautiful thing there is. We, we love vanity and sin. We love deprivations and wickedness. So we think that God has abandoned us and that God does not like us. But God does not always correct our weaknesses. God does not always stay our hand when it plunges into sin. But he does save us. In the end, God saves us. And he saves us with a kiss. End scene. That's just beautiful. That God doesn't save us through taking a pound of flesh. He doesn't save us through acts of aggression and or if we hate ourselves enough. No, it's just the tender application of the work of the cross to you and to me. Um, and so I simply want to say that um, the genius of the Mockingbird movement is that it affirms that the center of everything is not me, not you, not a denomination, not a particular guru. It's the Christ who, um, in his justifying love, loves you as you are and not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be, that you are loved beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond infidelity, infidelity, beyond uh, anything that you could do or not do, uh, and that that is the word that definitively holds the day. And what I simply want to say is that's not just our odd, obscurantist, niche market idea. It's actually the veritable core of Old and New Testaments according to Christ. And so when you proclaim the gospel, you might be accused of not taking cultural issues seriously enough, maybe not enforcing behavioral codes enough, Maybe, but if you are upholding the veritable Christ placarding the bloodstain for the world to see, you are doing your job. And if you appreciate that in a sermon, you are hearing well. Jesus told us to do it this way. Um, now, I simply want to conclude by returning back to the descending casket. Uh, after 
trying to communicate to you that the goal of Christian homiletics is to proclaim the Christ who moves towards us with non-hostility and non-disgust, which is, by the way, a destabilizing and yet completely stabilizing amnesty and message. We have to return uh, um, to my descending casket because I had something happen that in some ways solidified these ideas for me personally. So I couldn't finish the dang prayer in my own mother's funeral liturgy. And I was standing there for what seemed like an eternity. It was probably long, though, probably 45 seconds. And um, my father was present. My father had divorced my mother when I was 12. And and it it was not a happy scene then. Uh, The years did something to repair some of that damage. But I was glad that he had come to the funeral and to the graveside. But uh, if any of you uh, ever get to meet him, and I think the only person in this room who knows him is uh, my wife, Um, Jack Magnus has his strengths, but being touchy-feely or emotional or emotionally expressive, that's just not among his talents. You know, we all have limitations. And uh, I used to say that he was made of wood, right? You know, reliable, sturdy, always there. But, you know, I've never heard I love you from him. He's not a hugger. I've never hugged the man. It's just not in him. Um, But... I sensed that somebody, when I was in the midst of my uh, inability to speak and having my moment, um, somebody was drawing near, and he just came behind me, my dad, and just lightly put his hand on my shoulder. That's it. And he just kept it there. There I am in all my ridiculous regalia, completely mute, my dad wearing... uh, you know, this odd-colored polo shirt, very awkward at a funeral, doesn't really feel like he belongs in religion. And I'm supposed to be the expert who's dumbstruck. But he's the one who approaches, and he's the one who touches. And it was almost like a miraculous healing in the sense of, like, I came to myself. I'm like, oh, I'm here, and I can finish And I finish the prayer. We commend thy servant Kimberly to the earth. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Um, What did he do for me? What was that a parable of? He localized the love. It wasn't abstract. It wasn't hoped for. It was localized. Um, He actualized something in the present. And for me, that is a bit of an icon of Christ who doesn't wait for us. He doesn't wait for us to be charming or to be interested or to figure out our innards. But we, uh, to quote Jim Monroe, we are loved as is always. And that ironically opens up a whole new world and a whole new future. Uh, It taught me that moment, and most importantly, the New Testament, that what sermons are to communicate is that through the meritorious work of Christ, we all have somewhere to turn. That's the message of the Bible, and I hope that's the message of every sermon you ever hear. And that God saves us. God saves us always. Thank you for your kind attention.